Hello, and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a particular love for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university. Uh, Days that feel so long ago now that it was positively the era of the Pilgrim Fathers. Yes, I think I just alighted from the Mayflower, the first Jew to land on Plymouth Rock. (laughs) This week, we're taking a little departure from the usual menu and tackling the inauguration of Joe Biden, which was held on January the 21st, 2021. It hardly needs me to say it was a big deal, but nonetheless, it's worth flagging that nearly 40 million people watched Biden's address um, on the combined major cable news and broadcast network uh, stations in the US, which amounted to 4% more than did the same for Trump's inauguration, which is a good thing, I think. I think every one of those percentage points will have hurt Donald Trump. Um, Variety in their review of the inauguration described it as welcome normalcy against extraordinary circumstances. And the one thing to add, of course, is that this took place two weeks after the Capitol riots on the 6th of January. For me personally, I found the inauguration really moving. Uh, I was glued to it. I was tearful at key moments. I did feel a huge sense of like America turning the page. Um, But that quote from Variety that this is sort of welcome normalcy, I just want to probe that a little bit because the thing it also made me think is how strange American political culture is. You know, that this kind of ritual of the transfer of power is so choreographed and seems so in a way specific to certain stories that America tells itself or certain ideas that America has about itself, that it made for quite peculiar political spectacle, I think particularly watching as a Brit. What did you make of the sheer amount of choreography in this, Zoe? I mean, it was quite hard for me to even wrap my mind around. The complexity of of American political rituals is huge. I found even just, you know, in preparation for, for today's conversation, just trying to go over the running order of who you know was performing, who was speaking, who was intoning, who was acting, who was announcing. It was insanely complicated. I felt that Wikipedia was kind of bursting under the under the sheer weight of, of all the different uh, bits to it. And you know, Tom, I, I wondered as a historian who takes in a slightly longer period of time than I do, is there any kind of comparison in history or in other in other lands with this kind of sheer pageantry? I think the only comparison that comes to mind uh, is my beloved French Republic. And you might remember the inauguration of Macron and how he sort of presented himself and his movement through the Louvre and so on, um, which was explicitly sort of evoking memories of the French monarchy, but also sort of winks almost back to Napoleon. Um, And you couldn't help but feel here, too, that the Americans, you know, like the French Republic, have this kind of repertoire, what Abraham Lincoln would call the mystic chords of memory that bind modern Americans back to the founding fathers, back to 1776. Uh, And I just think in Britain, we don't get it. We don't have a master script that sort of stands behind um, so much of the the kind of political um, world in that for us, pageantry is a thing that the royals do. You know, it's something that's done by the monarchy, you know, trooping of the color, et cetera. Whereas our prime ministers actually have very little in the way of 
pageantry. The thing to remember with both France and America is that what you're witnessing is a transformation in the head of state. And as a result, that level of symbolism is, is all the greater and kind of all the grander. I was really struck by the level of detail too, that the people who plan these things are thinking about every little gesture. Uh, I saw that Biden insisted that he used a Bible that was a sort of hand-me-down from the family that had a Celtic cross on it. Whereas Kamala Harris swore on a Bible that indeed had been used by Marshall Thurgood, who was the first ever African-American justice. What did you make of the speech itself, Zoe? Before I offer any thoughts on that, um, I just think it's worth um, just thinking about how a country that is, as you say, following such a kind of um, narrative script rooted in the founding fathers, um, this sort of 1776 and onwards narrative. You know, I think that the last few years, and especially the last year with the new emphasis on, on you know, peoples that have been shut out or oppressed and, you know, the emphasis on inclusion and diversity and, and black history, I think that has actually sort of changed that narrative or at least disrupted it. And I think that produces interesting attempts to, to kind of find a way to not necessarily um, trash the, the ultimate American um, narrative. It's a, very, it's, it's a very patriarchal event, but even so you now feel that discomfort um, that I think there is, especially throughout the left, which obviously Biden represents with invoking that very history, which is also the kind of fundamental history. So I think this, this inauguration was a, was a sort of showcase of how you can begin to, I don't know, temper that narrative um, with, with new narratives that are more quote unquote inclusive. Um, in terms of the speech itself, I, I thought it was a bit dim, like a bit like the speech of a dim-witted person. And I think I sort of slightly think Biden sounds dim and probably sounds dimmer than he is. And I, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's Biden in, in there and not Trump. Um, but I think that the, the emphasis, this emphasis on unity didn't work for me because it wasn't clear how he proposes to allow freedom of speech to flourish within unity. What, it, it, what I don't like about unity is that it's a little woolly about what it means for, for extremes or disputation and disagreement. I think what has to be emphasized is that there's no room or tolerance for violence. Whereas I think extreme disagreement, he, he is, is frankly part and parcel of, of living in a, a free country. So I'm made a little bit uneasy by some of the wooliness that is allowed to surround this concept of unity. And he says, you know, we can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. Well, frankly, it's our right in this country to see, or in, in any free country, to see each other exactly as we want to see each other. But, you know, obviously I, I know that the point is that we've been through this horrible period of polarization and, and angst and violence. Um, and ideally we can all get along, but that's not really how it works in a liberal democracy. So that's, that's kind of where I stood on that speech. Um, but I think, Tom, you, you picked up on some interesting moral and religious aspects to it. Well, I did. I just to underline what you said, I think it's interesting all the evocations of Abraham Lincoln in the speech. Um, and that if we're thinking about the, the, the sort of heritage from the past, Biden alluded to the fact um, of that earlier speech, you know, Lincoln's inauguration in 1861, at a time when the Capitol building itself, which of course is the backdrop for this speech, was incomplete. Um, it was another inauguration in which there'd been massive military presence because Lincoln was um, inaugurated at a moment when the southern states had just seceded 
And so there was a huge amount of anxiety about his security. And it should be said that this inauguration, too, also had, you know, 25,000 troops in Washington. It was a sort of huge military uh, presence. But he's drawing on Lincoln because he, again, wants to appeal to what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Like it's a plea and, you know, through a memory of division to say, look, America, we've been divided before. We've seen the pain and the peril of polarization. And we can learn to kind of grow together as a country once again. So you might say it's optimistic, Zoe. You might say, you know, it's a little too hopeful. But I think that use of the past was quite deliberate in making America remember its histories of division and how it sort of had to work through these things before. Um, In terms of religion, it's worth remembering Biden is only the second Catholic president after JFK. That actually that morning of the inauguration, he went to a mass at uh, St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington with Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer all went down and had mass together. Um, And I loved the echoes in the speech to figures like St. Augustine in terms of thinking about how a people is defined by the objects that they love, by the things that they can hold true. Uh, I know you're a fan of St. Augustine, Zoe. I mean, I remember us reading the confessions together with great pleasure. That message of sort of renouncing your carnal life for the the, the sort of higher plane of the soul really spoke to me. <laughs> Left a lasting imprint. Um, but, there, but there is still something I found very sincere about the speech. And I understand what you mean, that it's maybe the speech of a dummy, but it had a kind of burning <laughs> sincerity and earnestness to it. And when he said, you know, to his enemies, take a measure of me and my heart, Joe, who could doubt your heart? I think he's a man whose virtue is blinding. Um, And, you know, maybe I've fallen in all the sentimental stuff about the hardship in the family and the trauma of losing his first wife and the trauma of losing Bo, his son. But you do feel that there's like a fundamentally good moral being in the White House again, and that that was, you know, quite, quite moving in the way that uh, in the way that it was delivered. And what did you make of Amanda Gorman, Zoe, the other kind of star of the day? Ah, yes. Amanda Gorman, the the big star of the day. Um, Well, I think watching Amanda Gorman, you just had to take your hat off and you or or another metaphor would be sit back and enjoy the ride or stand up and start cheering. I mean, there was that was the sort of um, irresistible quality to to her performance. And, you know, I, I think it's great that she, just on the optics alone, I mean, here's someone who had um, a speech impediment growing up and here she is kind of doing the thing that is, you know, the most sort of potentially terrifying and pulling it off with the sort of grace and confidence of a, of a, of a long time Royal Shakespeare Company actor. She looked gorgeous. She was the sort of starburst that you can see why they went for her. I mean, her youth, I think, was was good. All of that stuff was good. However, I'm sorry, but the poem was not good. I mean, her delivery of it was was wonderful, kind of spoken word style. But the poem itself, it literally made no sense. I mean, the, the metaphors were a complete mess. It it was very clunking. Justice, just just is uh, some of that wordplay hit just. By the standards of like really good poetry, <laughs> and, and I don't just mean the, the starchiest bits of the canon, but including world literature. I'm sorry, I don't think it was had any much literary or poetic merit. But having said that, I'm not sure that that mattered. I mean, she did exactly what what was needed um, in terms of just a spectacle boost that her very presence seemed to provide. 
But what's been interesting post Gorman is seeing her star and the way that stars can be made now. Interestingly, she landed a modeling contract. That seems to be the kind of number oh. one prize. So I think this is an example of a, of a poet who, yes, the poetry debatable, but the beauty of the person, and I mean that physically, just you know, clearly tapped into a zeitgeist. And I just think it's interesting that, that the poet laureate, youth poet laureate then becomes a model. You know, that is the way we express adulation um, these days. Uh, have I been too harsh? She also has a three book deal with Penguin. So, I mean, there is there is some sort of literary enthusiasm for her as well. Uh, I think she is filling very big shoes. It's worth thinking back to previous poets who've spoken at the inauguration for Democratic presidents. And so you know, Maya Angelou comes to mind or Robert Frost. And this clearly isn't in that kind of league. That said, it was a transfixing kind of spectacle, as you say, a kind of transfixing performance. I was struck that one of the people who tweeted congratulations afterwards was Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it did feel like you were watching a song from Hamilton being delivered, you know, where again, the kind of content is sort of much less important than the rhythm. There was a big piece um, on CNN actually in response to the criticism that had been voiced by the spectator. Um, and CNN ran with this big thing comparing her to Phyllis Wheatley, um, who was an enslaved um, American female poet in the 18th century, sort of very popular in the 1770s. Uh, this piece trying to claim that she was America's real kind of first female poet laureate. One of the downsides of this archive of memory, that, as I say, that Americans carry around with them, is just as it can, you can draw inspiration from the past, you also feel that everything contemporary can be dragged back to the old divisions, the old wounds, the, you know, the old injustices of the past. Um, your thing about the modeling contract, Zoe, makes me think about the presence of celebrities in the midst of all of this political spectacle. And that after the sort of pageantry of power was done, we then had that celebrating America event uh, in the evening. Um, did you see any of that, Zoe, or have any thoughts on it? I saw some of it, and I'll get to that. I just wanted to clarify that um, Amanda Gorman has signed with IMG Models, and they <laughs> represent the likes of Kate Moss and Giselle. Uh, so I think, I think that's... <laughs> So, and just to be clear, also the name of her poem is The Hill We Climb. In terms of the celebrities, it's, I just find it hilarious. I mean, great. Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, bring it on. I mean, there's this, there's the most extraordinary sort of mashup of people that goes way beyond what I saw, which was, as I say, these kind of a few, you know, Tom Hanks, a few of these singers. I mean, just to, just to kind of read a little bit of the lineup, um, just to give a sense of just how own world completely the American inaugural entertainment lineup. So we have Anthony Gaskin, a Virginia UPS delivery man, introducing John Bon Jovi, who's performing an acoustic rendition of Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Okay, the so UPS introduces John Bon Jovi, who's performing a rendition of a Beatles song. Yo-Yo Ma performed a cello solo sampling Amazing Grace, Going home from Dvorak's Ninth Symphony and Simple Gifts. Biden was then introduced by Tom Hanks, the U.S. Navy band brass ensembles playing of four ruffles and flourishes and hail to the chief. And then you get Aunt Clemens and Justin Timberlake performing their song Better Days in Memphis. You then get Mackenzie Adams. I remember her, a Washington elementary school teacher introducing the Foo Fighters. So it's just it's kind of a fascinating <laughs> intertextual or intermusic 
medley and actually facilitated by the the fact that it wasn't all in one place so that's why you have people in washington people in you know all around the country um uh in dc all of them kind of sort of being streamed in but all of this did make me think it's very what is it about the american setup can you imagine for a second in the uk a new prime minister being met with like a giant sort of festival of events with Elton John singing, I don't know, Kate Bush making an appearance to, to belt out her support for Boris <laughs> Johnson. Just doesn't Harry Styles, Ariana Grande. Can, can you imagine these people being marshaled to celebrate a change of political power? Is, is that just a sign that in America, politics is a kind of consumer sport as well? But I mean, I think it is in the UK too. So I don't know. What do you think? It would be easy to to blame it on Trump and say, like, this is just the acceleration of, you know, politics and celebrity collapsing into each other. Um, but then I think it probably has a, a kind of much longer history. I think it's to do with the power of the democratic cultural establishment. Um, you know, you only have to look at the starriness of the acts who play for Obama, you know, uh, Beyonce uh, or Lady Gaga playing for Biden with Trump's rather meager kind of supporters that he could marshal in terms of musical stars to support him when he, at his inauguration a few years ago. So there is, I think, a particular story here about high profile um, democratic supporters who are very prominent in the media, you know, figures like Whoopi Goldberg or like Barbra Streisand or like Jane Fonda. I think it was actually striking that although, you know, our eye falls on all the novelties of Biden, like the innovations, the desire to try and do something for diversity in particular, Jennifer Lopez did part of the Pledge of Allegiance in Spanish. You know, she offered it as a translation, which I think is a sign of a kind of bilingualism now starting to come into the inauguration ceremony. Um, but I think, you know, one of the star acts that Biden picked was Garth Brooks, American country singer, exactly the kind of person that Trump supporters might otherwise listen to. And so I thought the kind of the mishmash that you're talking about, and I think you're entirely right about, is also very deliberate that the Democrats have got people that speak to their base. And, you know, a lot of that is to do with rising new stars and rising minority stars in particular. But Biden is also desperately trying to appeal to those disaffected uh, Republicans and as a result, giving them some of his kind of folksy uh, Americana charm. And so having Garth Brooks and having the kind of grandfatherly air that he did in the speech, you know, where he says things like, you know, folks or I get it, or there's a colloquialism a kind of a coziness in Joe Biden um, that coexists with these quotations from St. Augustine and so on. Um, in terms of, is this kind of, you know, the celebrity dimension of it, the last thing I'd say, remember Cool Britannia, Zoe, in 1997. Remember how badly Tony Blair was mocked for consorting with Oasis for inviting celebrities into number 10, that it was all seen as really gimmicky. Um, as you're, you know, you're right to suggest that in Britain, the PM you know, shouldn't be seen to be kind of fraternizing too much with the with the loveys. And I think in our particular um, culture war environment in Britain, loveys are real enemies of a lot of the, the Tory press. And so they're all sort of kept at arm's length. So, Zoe, you wear two hats in this debate in that you've obviously spent time in America and you've also spent time in Britain. I wonder when you watch something like the inauguration is there something a bit cheesy about it? I mean, I think we're all fascinated by it as Brits because it feels exotic, but listening to it sort of from the inside, does it, or even from the outside, did you find bits of it a bit cringeworthy? 
I, I also find it exotic, but yes, unlike you, I don't find it exotic enough to be as starstruck or as addicted or, or adulatory. I mean, it, it always fascinates me to see British fascination with, with American politics and American political theatre. The fact that it doesn't have that effect on me, though, probably doesn't have to do with the fact that I have a kind of dodgy, double-dealing nationality thing going on. But I think it's just to do with the fact that I, I'm generally not so into the particular American style of, of sentimental God bless America-ish kind of stuff. That said, in a way, because it's so authentic here, I do I do feel more comfortable with it, perhaps. I find it perhaps less fascinating or exotic, but I do find it comfortable. And I find that when British politicians or any bits of the British political system attempt to start to use that kind of slightly grandiose sentimental language, um, where it's very hard to actually pinpoint what the words that are being said actually mean, celebrating America's change makers, that kind of thing. I think that that just gives me gives me the, the, the big cringe. Uh, but in the American context, it's just so natural here. You know, they've naturalized it. And, you know, it does play a role. You know, the American dream, it's very unclear whether it still exists, um, certainly in the old form. But, you know, fake it till you make it. That's always been the American way. And it, it, it's, a, it's a harsh system, but it does seem to also motivate people to do extraordinary things. So I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was massively moved. I'm not an ins- enough of an insider enough. I haven't suffered enough in this country under Trump. I did, I did, I did like it. Um, I, I enjoyed some of that sentimentality is what I would say. Just as a last thing on that, it's striking that he did in the spirit of, sort of Catholic repentance, he did show humility. And he did do that moment where he said, let's honor the 400,000 people who have died of COVID. Um, And it could have felt cheesy. And I now feel sort of tiresome when we think about the clap that we're asked to do periodically on our doorsteps on Thursday night. But in America, where so much of the administration for the past year has been in total denial about the health emergency, and Biden says, you know, we've lost more people to COVID in the past year than we lost in the whole Second World War. So I did feel there was an interesting mix of this youthful optimism with Amanda Gorman, but then also a gravity, a kind of solemnity that this sort of old man has you know, come down from the mountain in order to tell some home truths to the young nation. Uh, and yeah, I did feel that it was it was tinged with sadness. Um, just as a last piece of theatre in the wake of the ceremony, um, he also went to Arlington and he laid uh, a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, which actually it's a hundred years since the tradition of the unknown soldier was created in the US. Mm. And so again, this awareness of like historic struggles, historic losses that now are going to be righted. I'm a sucker for all that symbolism. I really am. Um, so as a final thought then, why do you think, you know, if we can, if we can sort of cut through my sort of sensitivities to symbolism, why do you think it has gripped people so much? Why the hype? Well, it's always hard to know with events like this, because on one level, they shoved so many celebrities at us that if we weren't, you know, bedazzled or, or kind of, you know, in hype, hyped, it would be strange. I think obviously, in this case, it was more than just celebrities. I think what charms people, and it's a very distinctive American thing, is that, yes, on one hand, by dint of even appearing in the inauguration, like your future is, is made. But, you know, they do have an amazing... Uh, array of of people, you know, from a delivery man to, 
you know, a, a regional pastor to, you know, brass bands, Girl Scouts, all that kind of thing. So, so there is, it does have a sort of feeling of all walks of life. And I think sort of that combination is very intoxicating. Apart from that, I mean, come on, this is like, this, this was the most on-brand, on-key event you could imagine for a country that is unbelievably roiled over issues of race and diversity. And there was no holding back on that front in this event. And I think that both minorities had cause to, to enjoy uh, the programming and so-called allies or just general people who are sort of disturbed at what's going on in the U.S. could also find that it was, you know, it was it behoved them to rave about the likes of Amanda Gorman, perhaps sometimes more than they, they would have done otherwise. So I think it was a branding and a temporal success the only thing that I found just a bit sort of bizarre is that at the end of the day, it was still all digital. And there was this big fundraising pre-inauguration event called America United uh, with Whoopi Goldberg and plenty of other stars. And people had to uh, have donated um, money in order to be able to watch this event. And I just thought, how, what a strange year this is that in the past, you pay your money, you get your champagne, you get your red carpet, you get to actually see Whoopi Goldberg or Barbara Streisand. Now you get a Zoom link and you just sit on your sofa. So I think that was that was fascinating how they managed to create a hit that did raise the nation's spirits, or at least let's say the spirits of people who didn't want Trump to win. And it was all it was all done from the couch. So I think that's very much the the COVID touch. I mean, the question is, did COVID in a sense add to the hype? People have nothing else going on but dreary, terrible news and what an awful year. Uh, so I suppose that's that's what I think, just a combination of all those things. Have I missed anything? You've stolen my thunder with COVID, uh, which I do think it is a desire. You know, so many people want to turn the page, not just on Trump, but on the past year, that this sort of message of renewal really struck home. Um, the only thing I'd add is the sense of there's still something remarkable about a nation that can talk about itself in those terms. That I think we're often quite jaded, quite ironic, quite cynical. You know, we like poking fun at ourselves in Britain. And so to see our kind of closest ally talk about the destiny of America, mm. to talk about America, the unfinished story, the kind of epic that's still being written, and to do it with total self-belief is always quite strange for us, but also strangely moving that we've lost the ability, I think, to talk about ourselves as a community with a destiny, with a particular mm -hmm. mission. Mm -hmm. um, and the only other thing I'd say in terms of why the hyped is, of course, Kamala Harris, uh, who is a figure of complete fetish and fascination, I think, for, for, yeah. for so many people. Um, you know that her walk-on song was Work That by Mary J. Blige on the, uh, on the official playlist. And there was a lot of speculation about Kamala wearing a purple coat in reference to the suffragettes and the battle for female equality. So yeah, I think Kamala Harris was the other sort of silent secret star. And a lot of the hope around the Biden administration is to do with probably completely unrealistic expectations of what she's going to be like as the real power behind the throne. Yeah. Join us for discussion next time of Taylor Swift's lockdown albums, Evermore and folklore, plus uh, the wider Taylor Swift phenomenon.